good morning. So we're going to be uh, continuing in the book of Numbers this morning on the yearly theme of just working through the book of Numbers. Um, I have found that Numbers is a book that, for me, if any book of the Bible, is one of the more neglected books. And as I've studied it in the past few years, uh, one of the reasons of choosing it for a yearly theme is the number of rich lessons that I have found in Numbers have been very impactful for me in my faith. And 1 Corinthians 10, in teaching the Corinthians, who seemed like they were more a people, a church, who wasn't really from a Jewish background, Paul exhorted them to see Israel's history and their time in the wilderness and all the things that happened with them as an example for us. And I think the more relevant we see these things, the more we associate with these events, the more rich the lessons become when we look at it that way. And I think chapters 13 through 15 really is one of the most defining moments that not only exists in the book of Numbers, but really it's one of the defining moments of Israel's history, actually. And it's referenced many, many times from this point and forward by others who come after them. It's the time when Israel has at first come to the border of the promised land of Canaan. They've approached it from the south. They left Mount Sinai really just recently in chapter 10. And after a series of issues in the wilderness leading up to this point, here they are. And by the end of these events, they're sentenced to a very famous 40-year time of wandering in the wilderness before they would come back and the second generation would conquer the land. But what we see here, I think, are the roots of discouragement. Israel is going to enter the land, the spies at least. They're going to bring back a bad report, and the report they bring is going to be overwhelmingly discouraging, and this generation will fail to seize on God's promises as a result. And so it'll help us, I think, get to the heart of why discouragement can be so overwhelming in our faith and how to overcome that. So this is an introductory picture again. Remember that Israel at this point is around two or three million individuals that God has segmented into tribal camps. And as they've been traveling through the wilderness, they've been doing it in a very organized way. And the tabernacle has been right in the middle of their nation as they've been camping in the wilderness. God has been training them, teaching them, investing in them. And before leaving Mount Sinai, God was encouraging the nation to invest their energy and their heart more than anything into the tabernacle, the priesthood, the Levites, learning holiness, learning about God, and in this chapter, we see whether or not they really have been doing those things on an individual basis. So this is going to involve, because the book of Numbers is um, teaching through much larger sections, it's going to involve a lot more summarizing of sections. And I'm going to be summarizing the first 24, 24 verses here. And so in verse 1 and 2, as they get to the border of Canaan, Canaan from the south, this is the wilderness of Paran, and on the northern side of that wilderness, right on the border of Canaan, is a place called Kadesh Barnea. And as they're camping at that southern end of the land, God tells them in verse 2, tells Moses particularly, to select 12 individuals, one leader from each of the tribes of Israel. And these leaders were to go into the land who are named in verses 4 through 16. Two of them would be Caleb and Joshua. 
Moses in verse 18, rather 17 through 20, he instructs them to go throughout the territory of Canaan to see what the land is like, verse 18, whether the people who live in it are strong, weak, many, few. Is the land good? Is it bad? Are the cities fortified or open camps? How about the land itself? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it? And bring some of the fruit. And in verse 20, this isn't in the New American Standard, but most translations have Moses saying, be of good courage. And I think that's really important, that as they're leaving, Moses is instructing them, don't just go in, but go in with courage and trust in God. So verse 21 through 24, they go through the land for 40, 40 days, navigating through it, taking stock of it, evaluating its condition, and they bring back a cluster of grapes as an evidence of how fruitful the land is. And that takes us to verse 25 through 33, uh, what we read in the scripture reading. And we get to see what kind of report they bring back. So let's start in verse 25, and we'll work from here. When they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses. So pause there. So kind of imagine the scene, right? So again, we're not talking about like just a small crowd of people or even what you might think of as a large crowd. We're thinking millions of people all gathered eagerly to hear this report. Mind you, the purpose of the Exodus from the very beginning has been to come to this land. And this isn't some new promise that God is making to bring them in. The Israelites, even while in Egypt, would have known through oral tradition promises God had made to Abraham to bring them to this land and give it to them. So these are things that were very well known and very well understood already that God had been anticipating bringing Israel into the land in its current condition. So the people, instead of saying, okay, yeah, you know, the land is fruitful, that's what God said, imagine Caleb having to quiet down the people because you're hearing people gasp and going, ugh, you know, and so Caleb's having to, whoa, 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 quiet, quiet, quiet. And he says, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. But... Now, the men who had gone up with him, this would be 10 of the spies out of the 12, said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So, they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone, and spying it out, is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Enoch are part of the Nephilim, by the way, these would be like giants, people who literally were like Goliaths. Um, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. So what's the problem? Ten of the leaders see the power of the Canaanites. And what they see is accurate, it's honest, 
And it really is a fair evaluation. The people of the land, I mean, Canaan is a very fruitful place. And the cities have had a lot of time to become fortified. Um, There's a key insertion at the end of verse 22, Hebron being built seven years before Zoan of Egypt. Um, It's kind of a strange thing, like why is that there? I think the idea is just these are ancient cities that aren't new. They've had a lot of time to build up fortifications. If this is a land that has had a lot of war between like the city kingdoms, they've had a lot of time to make innovations with their war technology, with their cities. Everything has had time to get extremely built up. And so, yeah, the cities are fortified. The people in it are large. They're powerful. They have weaponry. And they may even have great wisdom to make war. And so it's not as if they're not telling the truth, right? But what's the difference between Caleb and we'll see Joshua compared to the other people? They do see the power of the Canaanites, but they understand God's faithfulness to his promises and God's power to overcome them. You know, mind you, what they've already seen and experienced with what God did to the Egyptians to bring them out of slavery. And again, it's, it's like every time they face a new problem, they forget the solutions that God has demonstrated already in the past, right? So the problem is they see the power of the Canaanites, but they refuse to believe what God can do. Because notice this in verse 31, Caleb quieted the people to reassure them. And were they having any of it? They said, I hear you, Caleb, but no, we're not able to go against the people. By the way, isn't that the point? Like, is the point of the land just to give this people a place of abundant luxury and then just leave them alone? Is that the point? The point is that they are too strong for the Israelites. That's exactly it. That's been the point all along. And the evaluation of the land was so that they could prepare their hearts and understand that they needed to fortify their faith so that they could have courage in the Lord And not just waltz into the land thinking everyone's just going to get out of their way, but that it was going to require a deeper trust in God and a trust in his ability to help them. So again, in a sense, yes, they're not strong enough, but the difference is whether or not they're really believing God's power. So I think there's a universal principle here that's an example to us. When God leads us, and like, okay, One parallel I think we need to make with the wilderness, what is our promised land, right? I would suggest to you this is our wilderness right now. And heaven, in a sense, is our promised land that God is calling us into, the place that we're to inherit with God. Um, But what does it take to get there? And isn't it true that just like for Israel, God was deliberately encountering them with their weakness so that they needed to rely on his strength in order to get there, isn't it the same for us? That God calls us by his commandments, his instructions, his encouragement to face things that really are beyond our strength. But what that should do is push us to depend more on him and to fortify our faith and our courage that he is able. So we need to learn, especially in our trials and in difficulties, that we give more weight to what God has promised and really commit promises, promises he's made to our memory and trust his power. What we learn from Israel's history isn't just about these people back then, but we learn that universally we are too quick 
to put too much emphasis on our weakness and not enough emphasis on our strength. We give God too little credit and we don't give his power enough remembrance when it matters the most. So let's look at chapter 14, verses 1 through 10. And I want you to think about something as we read this. Think about the point when God chooses to step in. Because I think there's an important lesson in God quietly waiting and allowing these things to work out. God has not stepped in yet, even though the bad report has been given and we'll see the congregation freak out at this bad report. Notice when God chooses to step in. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And remember last time we talked about how complaining's like a wildfire. And here we go again. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the, will, in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little children will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader to return to Egypt. Has God intervened yet? Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, Joshua was sent as a spy, so he saw the land, and Caleb, who had already spoken, the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, and they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. And if you're using an ESV, I like it says, they will be our bread. I think there's an irony there. They said, this is a land that devours its inhabitants, whereas Joshua is saying, no, we will devour them. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Notice this. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. So Caleb and Joshua plead with the people, and God waits to intervene. And I, I think there's an important lesson in that on why he waits. Before God intervenes, do you think the situation could change? When, verse 1, the congregation began lifting up their voices and crying out, grumbled against Moses and Aaron, could the situation change? When they said, why did we ever come out of Egypt? I wish we would have died in Egypt or died in this wilderness. Let's appoint a leader in return. And when Moses and Aaron fell on their faces, could the situation have still changed? Or how about when Joshua and Caleb speak up and said, if God is pleased with us, he'll bring us in. We are able and God will, will be with us to conquer this land. Don't fear the people. Could they, at that moment, have listened, humbled themselves, calmed down, and changed? Did it need to escalate. And by the way, what's going to happen now that it escalates to this point? When God has to step in himself, what's the consequence? We'll see that. So I think there's a principle here. Encouragement 
spiritual encouragement is critical in our fellowship together. The problem is the congregation would not receive the encouragement to think differently about the trial that was right before them. Could they have listened? Absolutely. I want to turn to a passage here I don't have on the board. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Keep your finger in numbers. We'll turn back there fairly briefly. But Hebrews chapter 3 is a passage that deals with why Israel, this whole generation, why did they die in the wilderness? Why did they wander for 40 years? So he ends up bringing that up in verse 7 through 11 of Hebrews chapter 3. And after he gives a personal exhortation, he says, um, verse 16, For who provoked him when they had heard, indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Now, sandwiched between the beginning quotes of verse 7 through 11, where he brings up that this generation was not able to enter his rest, and then he returns back to that in verse 16 through 19, sandwiched between that is a personal exhortation that I think is a critical lesson for us to learn. This I've mentioned before, for those of you who have been attending here for a while, if there's like one instruction in the Bible that I would say has changed my faith more than just about any other instruction, it's this one. Verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls, falls away from the living God. And this is it. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So I'm going to bring this up again in this lesson, but these national failures were a reflection of personal failures. This wasn't just the fact that the nation as a congregation failed. That was a failure that was already happening on an individual level within the nation, that they were failing to give each other the proper encouragements already. So now that the bigger moment has come, nobody's listening, listening anymore, right? And so what can we learn from that? Not just that encouragement is valuable to listen to, but what does it say in verse 13? That we need to be encouraging one another. And by the way, how often does it say to do that? Day after day, as long as it is still called today. The reason this passage changed my life so much is I read this one day just in my own reading. And one day I was reading my Bible in Minnesota and I realized this is an instruction that I can apply. And I started showing this to people. Have you read this? This is saying like we need to encourage each other like every day. And I started praying about it. And anyway, I've, just, I've noticed how much trying to proactively encourage others every day and thinking, have I encourage someone else's faith today when the answer is no and I decide then to text or call or something to somebody, there's something about that that is accumulative. And I think we see at the end of this in chapter 15 that that's really what God says is the solution. There needs to be a much more personal, more proactive investment into encouraging relationships that build 
greater faith over time. And so encouragement is critical in our fellowship because in these greater moments, we're not going to have the heart to listen or reason through our problems if we're not already making these smaller, more personal decisions. So how does God handle this in verse 11? We're going to see some of God's solutions and what he sentences Israel to here. But again, God waits to intervene, and here's what happens. Now that they're literally going to stone Moses and Aaron, God has to step in now. And here's just how it's going to go. Verse 9, rather verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for by your strength you brought up this people from their midst, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen eye to eye while your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, Because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath, Therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. But now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt, even until now. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. So this is in many ways parallel to Exodus 32. You remember when the people made the gold calf at Mount Sinai, God tells Moses that this is a disobedient people. He's going to destroy them and make through Moses a new nation better than them. Moses intercedes in a very similar way, saying, God, what about your reputation among the people? Forgive the people. And God forgives them then. Similarly, Moses does the same thing here. He brings up God's reputation. He's concerned more about how this will affect people's view of God, God's ability to convert Gentile people. And he goes further than that here. Because in Exodus 34, as an extension of those events, of Moses' intercession, God proclaims his name to Moses and Moses remembers what God said and he quotes it in verse 18. Moses quotes to God what God said about himself. Notice in verse 17, he says, let the power of the Lord be great just as you have declared. And so God is holding, or rather Moses is holding God to his own word, to his own promises about his own character. And in verse 20, God listens immediately. And I want you to think about how fair this is for a moment. God is about to dispossess the people. Isn't that what they were just about to do with Moses? They were literally about to stone Moses and Aaron to death so that they could go back to Egypt. And think about the insanity of that. They aren't just 
a crosswalk from Egypt. They are miles and miles and miles from Egypt. The only reason they got to Canaan is because God was sending them miraculous food and sustaining them miraculously through the wilderness. So, I mean, first of all, they're not going to make it back to Egypt even if they want to, right? But they're about to dispossess God, and God, to be fair, says, fine, let me give them what they want. I will dispossess them then. Moses steps in the gap. And what does this do? What this does is it draws out two things. Moses' love for the people and God's willingness to forgive to an astonishing degree. You know, Moses in chapter 11, you remember when they were complaining about food, Moses said, this is how it's going to be, just kill me now, right? Whereas here, Moses says, God, don't do this. Forgive the people. Hidden within that is Moses' willingness to commit to the people. And we'll see God's promise in what seems like just a punishment is that God is also going to commit to the people. So Moses couldn't have asked for anything more difficult. And I think in verse 17 when he says, let the power of the Lord be great, he's not saying perform some visible miracle and change their minds. What Moses sees as God's power is his forgiveness is his ability to work with impossible people, to work with them, to develop them, to change them, to fulfill his promises with people who have given up and abandoned God. So there's nothing more taxing, nothing more difficult that Moses could have possibly have asked for. And I don't know what it would have been like if Moses would have said, okay, start a new nation through me, let's get started. I don't know if things would have happened quicker getting to Jesus, But I just want to put into your mind that it may not be that this means 40 years more. But what this may be is God behind the scenes working out, okay, this doesn't just mean 40 more years in the wilderness. This means the period of the judges. This means the period of Samuel and David and the faithless kings. This means the return of captivity. This means 1,500 years before Jesus can come into the world. But Moses, because you asked it, I've done it. And in verse 21, God is going to fill the earth with his glory. And their disobedience is not going to stop that. His power will be great, just as was declared. So verse 22 through 38, we'll read this section as well. And I want you to think about God's sentence here, his judgment. It is a punishment, right? But what was the alternative? The alternative is that they immediately die. And so I want us to be careful that God's not giving an undue punishment to harsh a punishment. God is working with the reality of the situation and sentencing sentencing them with something that deals with the reality of the situation and makes the best and gives the greatest opportunity with a situation where they deserve to die immediately, right? So the punishment is actually just fundamentally an act of great graciousness to the people. Verse 22. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurn me see it. But my servant Caleb Because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites who live, live in the valleys turn tomorrow and set out to the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. 
means basically turn backwards, turn around. Verse 26, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land which I swore to settle you, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in. They will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness, and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days, for every day you shall bear your guilt a year, even 40 years, and you will know my opposition. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely I will do this to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be destroyed, and there they will die. As for the men who Moses sent to spy out the land and who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing out a bad report concerning the land, even those men who brought out the very bad report of the land died by a plague before the Lord. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive out of these men or out of those men who went to spy out the land. So again, God sentences Israel to remain 40 years in the wilderness. By the way, verse 27 is kind of, um, I don't know, there's, there's a strange irony in God's question. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? And then God volunteers himself for 40 more years with them. And really he's only spent, it's a little over a year since the Exodus. So I mean, by this point, it's gotten to this point from just one year. And God says, how long am I going to bear with this people? I'll give you 40 more years. And I want to think about that. God's judgment is not a withdrawal. God isn't saying, 40 years and good luck. You're not going to see my presence anymore. Moses isn't going to talk to you anymore. I'm not even going to bother with you anymore. No, God's answer is like James 4, verse 6, when he's saying, repent, cleanse your hands, uh, change your hearts, you adulteresses, all that. James 4, 6, when presented with the situation, says, but he gives greater grace. That God is always ready to give more, invest more, and no matter the circumstances we put ourselves in, no matter how bad it may seem or how hopeless it may seem, God is always able to work out solutions to the problems. And so God's punishment is a commitment. I will give more to this nation, and if a year wasn't enough, I will invest 40 more years to train the nation. Even besides that, I think ultimately this is a time of healing. You know, a lot of us have had injuries. Mitchell right now has a broken wrist. But I've had injuries where it happened in a moment, right? I was in an ATV accident that I've used as a sermon illustration more times than I remember, where I collapsed a lung and hurt my back, and that happened like this. I mean, it took seconds for that accident. The healing process took months. Sin causes damage. And so the time frame gives an incredible amount of room for Israel to reflect on what they've done 
And since they'll stay in the wilderness to not get distracted by Canaan or the industry or the abundance, but just to reflect, to repent, to rebuild their faith, and to heal from the sin. And the Levites are there. God is there. Moses is there. Caleb is there. Joshua is there. And so that time frame isn't just, look what you've done. You're bad. Now get on with it. It's a recommitment to rebuild and to heal from the damage that's already been done. It's ultimately a solution. But let's look at verse 39 through 45. And we're going to summarize, by the way, a lot of chapter 15 for the sake of time. But we will read 39 through 45 here at the end of the chapter to see after all of this has happened now, what do the people do now that they've heard these things from God? Verse 39. When Moses spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. Okay, stop there. Isn't that great? The people hear that they're being disciplined and punished for what they've done, that there are consequences for what they've done. The leaders who brought back a bad report, they are struck dead by God. And so, good, they're to mourn. It's devastating. But how do they act on that? Verse 40. In the morning, however, they rose up early and went up to the ridge of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised. But Moses said, Why then are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord when it will not succeed? Do not go up, or you will be struck down before your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will be there in front of you, and you will fall by the sword, inasmuch as you have turned back from following the Lord, and the Lord will not be with you. Verse 44, but they went up heedlessly to the ridge of the hill country. Neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses left the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and struck them and beat them down as far as Horma. So they're unwilling to let God's judgment, his word, guide their sorrow. Healing from sin begins with hearing. If they're going to heal and repent and be restored, the first thing that they need to do is listen. So they don't listen here. And we'll we'll get to chapter 15 in a minute where it's not just a random insertion of laws that have no connection or context with these events but that God encourages Moses, speak to the children of Israel, give them instruction. If we are going to be restored and healed from our sin, it starts with listening to God. But I think there's a principle here. God said they wouldn't see the land. God said they would die in the wilderness. They said, you know what? We have sinned. We admit it. But we're going to go up to the land. And Moses says, no, Why are you transgressing against the Lord? He's he's not with you, right? A humbled heart will accept, bear with, and find healing through the consequences of sin. I remember, and some of you have heard me mention this before, um, a brother named Ezekiel in Minnesota. He had committed some crimes in his past that he had gotten away with, and serious crimes. And sometime after he was a Christian, or is a Christian, 
he decided he needed to go to a police station and turn himself in. Nobody told him to do that. Nobody encouraged him to do that. Nobody, I think, even knew about the things that were on his heart. But just from his own developed convictions, he went to a police station and he did serve some time for the things that he had done. He's out of jail now. He's not still in jail. But again, what, what led him to do that? It was the condition of his heart. And we see this throughout the Bible with people like David and so many in Scripture where God pronounced a penalty and said, I forgive you, I'll work with you, we can rebuild, but there are things that you will have to suffer with now because of what you've done, and that's not going to go away. And can that even be good when that happens to us? Can that be something that helps us heal and especially restore our view of God. Um, So again, a humbled heart accepts the consequences. God wasn't just trying to passively do harm to the nation with the 40 years, but it was for their good. And so we can trust that God is looking out for our best interest even when we are suffering and cannot escape consequences that have come from our own sins. By the way, This is what forgiveness is, isn't it? God in forgiveness is not only equipping them to have a right relationship with him, but to turn around, to listen, to rebuild, to serve. And that's what we see in chapter 15. And so God reinforces immediate solutions that heal. They can't go in the land, but what can they do? I want to read just verses 1 through 3. And we'll make some connections here to the text in terms of summarizing it. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land where you are to live, notice this, which I am giving you, then make an offering by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a special vow, or a freewill offering, or in your appointed times, to make a soothing aroma to the Lord from the herd or from the flock. So, by the way, God goes on to supplement, um, to add things onto sacrificial laws he had already made. He would already outlined the animals. But here he adds in with those animals, grain, oil, wine, things that would demonstrate that with the animal was also coming abundance of land. And God was going to make sure that they were always provided with enough where millions upon millions of people could be constantly bringing these things. So, suffice it to say. Verse 2, do you think it's an accident that immediately after this, God emphasizes before anything else, when you enter the land, where you are to live, which I am giving you, is look, I'm still giving you the land. And if you want to connect with that promise, it's not by brazenly trying to go into it without permission. It's through the sacrificial system. That's always been the way that Israel in the wilderness could connect with God. And it's still the way they can connect with God's promises. And so it may not be what they like. It may not be what they want. But Canaan was always about having a relationship with God and bringing the other nations into a relationship with God. And the tabernacle and the sacrificial system was always meant to be the center of the nation to cultivate hope among the nation and faith. So... Through verse 2, but look at verse 18 as well. God emphasizes this again. 
So God is giving a series of, again, supplemental instructions about the sacrifices, um, about sin sacrifices as well that will result in forgiveness. Um, In verse 18, kind of in the midst of this, he says, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land where I bring you, then that shall be that when you eat of the food of the land, you shall lift up an offering to the Lord. So again, they are forgiven. And I think God is emphasizing, you really are forgiven. I'm not holding this over your head. I'm bringing you into the land. I've truly pardoned you from this sin. And you can experience the cleansing power of that forgiveness if you'll just commit to this system set up that's meant to build faith and trust in God. And then you have at the end of the chapter a situation where somebody is brazenly breaking the Sabbath and they're killed by the congregation by stoning. And God offers another immediate solution that's meant to be preventative and intimate and individual. They're to put these four blue tassels on the edges of their garments in verse 38, the corners. And look at verse 39. It shall be a tassel tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you have played the harlot so that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So God is still claiming them, right? But they need to work on claiming God as their God, remembering him, submitting to him, and being obedient to him. So just the final principle here is Jesus' words in Luke 16, verse 10, that faith in the bigger things comes from faithfulness in the seemingly little and mundane things. You know, what does animal sacrifice have to do with going into the land of Canaan? Everything. It has everything to go into the land of Canaan because that's how God would build his relationship with his people. You know, you think about covenantal relationships like what Israel had with God and the collapse that that relationship experienced here where it nearly came to an end. When do covenantal relationships collapse like that? When do marriages end up in a place of divorce? At best, at best, one party in the relationship has failed to cultivate that relationship on a much more personal and intimate level. And that festers and it grows and then it becomes this much broader, bigger problem. Jesus said in Luke 16:10, he who is faithful in a very little thing is also faithful in much. But he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is also unrighteous in much. How do we have more faith in the bigger things? How do we have more endurance through trials? How do we have more wisdom in our relationships to serve and help each other through each other's burdens to bear them with any adequacy in the Lord? We have to commit to being faithful in the seemingly mundane instructions of God, to honor God and to be obedient to him in unseen and behind-the-scenes ways where no one can see it. And if that's what we'll do, then we can know God and we can be effective in serving him. So that's where we'll end the lesson for this morning. If you're here this morning, um, the only people destined for that promised land were the people of Israel. And in the same way, the only people that God has uh, destined for heaven 
are those that believe in his son and repent of their sins because of what Jesus did dying on the cross and are baptized for the remission of their sins because of the hope that comes through his resurrection. And so if you're here this morning and see your need to respond to the gospel or if there's anything that we can do for you in your relationship with God, please bring it forward while we stand and sing our invitation song.